The Home Ranch by Ralph Moody, 1956, University of Nebraska Press, Chapter 23, Diamond Crosses. Hmm. Scanning ahead in this chapter, Father, makes me think of how grateful we are that uh, even when we are lost and do not quite see anything that we should be doing, we can be have confidence that you uh, give us wisdom, that you walk us into areas where we are wholly dependent on you. And uh, we do ask, Father, that you increase our faith, grow us so that we might declare your goodness even in the midst of things we don't understand. In Jesus' name, amen. It was pitch black on our little tent when Mr. Bachelet woke me up. Let's w- Wind's let down a bit, he said. It's time we was up and at it. Reckon you could water the horses while I pull camp and wrestle some grub? When I crawled outside, the air was thick with dust, and the wind was still blowing from the southwest. But it wasn't roaring as loud in the trees as it had the night before. In the dim gray-brown light, I could make out a blurred mound that looked like a small haystack. As I walked toward it, I could make out a huddle of horses standing with their tails to the wind. Pinch stood with his head hanging nearly to the ground, and the others were crowded close around him. I retied the ropes so the horses could string out, bridled Pinch, mounted, and turned him toward the creek. Except for Blue Boy, no horse moved until its lead rope pulled tight, and old Pinch walked as though he were still half asleep. The water hole had seeped only half full, and digging it deeper didn't help, so I could let the horses have only a few swallows apiece. Blue Boy was the only one that fought for it. The rest let me lead them away easily, and stood with heads drooped and tails to the wind. When I got back to camp, Mr. Bachelet had the packs made up, coffee boiling, and beans and bacon fried. There had been no dawn, but the light had grown strong enough that we could see nearly a hundred yards through the dust. As we ate, Mr. Batchett watched the horses and said, Beat out. Looking bunch of horse flesh, ain't it? Old pinch won't last another day and night like this. Drink good? No, sir, I told him. There wasn't much water, so I could only let them have a few swallows. Blue boy was the only one that fought for it. Wild horse in him. He'd stand up to a month of this. Reckon you'd best to try using him today. You'll need to save your your mare, in case old Pinch don't make it. I'll take the sorrel, hobble the rest, and turn him loose. When I came back from hobbling the horses, Mr. Bassett was tramping out the breakfast fire. The first thing I noticed was that he was wearing his six-shooter. He saw me looking at it and said, Reckon we'll have need of it. Want I should help you saddle up? I told him I thought he'd better, and as we carried our saddles to the horses, he said, Blue Devil might turn out worth his salt on this trip. Never looked to see the day he would. Glad you fetched him along. Then, when I was ready to mount, he told me, You'll have to fight him if need be this time. Don't death let you get out of sight in this dust. Like is not the wind veer, and there's no landmarks to go by. Blue Boy reared when I went into the saddle and came down in a driving run, but I brought him around in a fairly close circle. After that, he bobbed his head and sidestepped, but let me hold him to a walk. When I brought Blue Boy back, Mr. Bassett called out. Wind shifted a couple of points to the westward about midnight. We reckon we'll find the stoutest drifters well north of downwind, 18 to 20 miles out. But we'd best do our dirty work first. Taint right to let him suffer. We'll spread out to, the hunt, to hunt him, but don't get out of sight. I need to be told what to hunt for, and was the first to find one. It was a tender-footed steer I'd had trouble with the day before. He was stretched out with his legs stiff, his eyes closed, and half buried in sandy dust, but there was light breathing in his flank. 
A shuttle ran through him when Mr. Bashett pulled the trigger. Then he lay still. For the blowing dust to finish, bearing, finish its bearing, we found 11 more, but six were past the need of bullets. I never, I never have been able to find any of the drifting cattle in that storm, but Mr. Bachelet led off across the prairie as if he were following a road. He spurred his sorrel into a canter and Blue Boy swung along beside it. After a mile or two, Mr. Bachelet had to ease his blowing horse to a jog, but Blue Boy fretted, bobbed his head, and side-danced. Two nights and a day without grazing hadn't sapped his strength, and the driving need to run was still in him. We'd cantered and jogged a dozen more times before Mr. Bachelet drew his horse close to me and called, Keep a sharp lookout to the right. Ought to be seeing some of our stock most any time now. The way he said, our stock, made me forget that my mouth was dry and my lungs burning with dust. Had I better pull away a little, I shouted back. Mr. Bachelet nodded and called, but keep an eye on me. Give a high sign if you see anything. We jogged and cantered twice more before I thought I saw a blurry shape off to my right. My eyes were burning and watering, so I couldn't be sure I'd really seen anything. But I waved my hat to Mr. Bachelet and drew drew Blue Boy around. He'd hardly taken a dozen strides when two of our smaller steers loomed out of the dust in front of us. Their backs were humped, their heads low, and they were barely creeping along, as if they were walking in their sleep. About done for, Mr. Batchett shouted as he rode up. But they might make out yet if this wind lets down. It shifted another point to the west. Did you take note? <laughs> I shook my head. With the dust blowing and no landmarks in sight, the wind could have veered all the way around without my knowing it. Mr. Batchett pulled the sorrel around to the upwind side of Blue Boy so he wouldn't have to shout and told me, Leave him drift. We'll know where to find him on the way back. The stout stuff will be 10 or 12 miles farther on, off more to the north. Wouldn't doubt me some if it's drifted off uh, as far as South Rush Creek. We left the steers to drift sleepily on and went back to jogging and cantering. We rode about 100 yards apart just so I could keep Mr. Batchelet in sight. I waved each time I saw cattle, but he waved. He only waved back and rode straight on. After what I thought was about an hour and a half, trees stood like dark shadows against the curtain of dust in front of me. <clears throat> when I looked for Mr. Batchelet, he was motioning me to him. South Rush Creek, I reckon, he shouted as I rode up. Not to hold the drifters if she if it ain't dry. They want to move on and leave water. South Rush Creek was as dry as Big Horse had been, but we found 12 of our better steers huddled in the lee of a little cottonwood thicket. Mr. Batchelet looked at them over carefully and shouted, Ain't bad off, but they got to have water before another day's out. Reckon the rest has drifted on to the middle rush. If I ain't mixed up, it branches off a few miles south of here. Ought to be two, three miles to eastward. Better Creek might have water in it. Mr. Bachelet was right about the distance to Middle Rush Creek, but there wasn't a drop of water in it. He rode it four or five miles to the north, and I rode south to its joining with the South Rush, but we found only ten of our cattle. We herded them into what shelter the few cottonwoods offered, and Mr. Bachelet sat looking glumly off toward the east. If my recollection's good, he told me, there ain't another creek in 20 miles. After crossing dry, two dry ones, cattle would scatter like blowed leaves. Reckon you could hold a course to ride diamond crosses? I could try, I shouted, but I don't know what they are. Light down, he told me. Then took a stick and drew a long, straight line in the sand. That's the wind. Then he drew three or four diamonds straddling it, with their points meeting along the line. Them's diamonds. You ride this zigzag. I'll ride this one. 
Keep the wind blowing your horse's mane across his right ear till you think it's, you've gone a quarter mile. Then turn him so as to bring it across his left. Go a quarter mile and stand still till I meet you. Mr. Bachelor took off his gun belt, buckled it around my waist, and told me, If I don't meet you at a, at a point, by the time you've waited ten minutes, fire once. Count a hundred slow and fire again till I do meet you. Keep a sharp lookout. The best cattle are the ones that goes the farthest. When we were back in our saddles and ready to quarter away from the wind in opposite directions, he shouted, Take a slow lope. You can see best at that gate. To ride those diamond crosses in the dust, I needed to know when I'd gone a quarter mile, or Mr. Bachelor and I wouldn't meet at the points. I used to go a mile and a half to school when we lived on the ranch and usually rode Lady at an easy lope. Just for something to do, I often counted her strides, and it always came to a few over 1,300. Blue Boy took a longer stride, so I figured that 200 of his strides would be a quarter of a mile. Counted them off and made a right angle turn. So I counted up to 190 after making the turn. Then Mr. Bachelor rode in from an angle to meet me. See anything, he shouted. I waved a hand back and forth and yelled, no. Keep going. Another quarter and turn left, he called out as he crossed my line and rode on. We made three diamonds and met almost perfectly on each of them before I saw any cattle. But they weren't ours. They were longhorn, slab-sided range cattle. When I met Mr. Bachelor at the point, I held up my hand for him to stop. There are other cattle around here, I hollered. I saw four steers, but they weren't ours. Seen some, too, he called back. Keep a sharp lookout, but don't stop or turn off course if you see cattle you know. We'd miss one another at the point. Before we met at the next point, I'd seen two of our white-faced bulls drifting along slowly, but not looking too bad. On the next diamond, I saw three more. I reached the next meeting point well ahead of Mr. Bachelor. When he rode up, he seemed nearer excited than I'd ever seen him. We're right amongst him, he shouted. And if I ain't forgot all I learned in the panhandle, we're due for a change of weather. Didn't take note how the wind's been hauling around, did you? You're near onto a quarter mile off point. Next leg, keep your horse's mane straight right till you turn, then, then straight forwards. I did as Mr. Bachelor told me and saw four more of our steers and bulls but that wasn't what excited me. I could have sworn I heard thunder. Hear that, Mr. Bachelor shouted as we passed at the next point. Then, before I'd counted 200 more strides, big drops of muddy rain hit me. In less than two minutes, the thunderclaps were almost overlapping and sounded like dynamite blasts all around me. With each crack, lightning turned the dust in the air bright yellow. Then the rain came down as if some great lake in heaven had overflowed. There was no need to count strides anymore and no sense in trying to ride in the downpour. There was only one thing I really wanted to do, and I did it. I jumped out of the saddle, pulled off my muddy clothes as fast as I could, and danced around and shouted and yelled in the rain. Blue Boy stood with his legs braced, snorting and watching me. Then he seemed to get the same feeling I had. He buck-jumped half a dozen times, shook himself as if he were trying to tear off the saddle, and then faced into the whipping rain and let it beat against his upturned head. The shower didn't last more than ten minutes, but an awful lot of water fell, and when it was over, the sun came out clear and bright. It seemed as if I could see almost to the ends of the earth, and all around me the prairie sparkled with drops of water on the buffalo grass. I was on top of a low hill, and as I pulled my dripping clothes back on, I could see nearly a hundred cattle in the shallow valleys. They were no longer humped up, but stood with straight backs and heads to the ground, sucking up the moisture on the grass. Before I climbed back onto Blue Boy, I stood for a few minutes, stretching, looking far off across the prairies, and wondering why I'd never noticed before how beautiful they were. I'd been having so much fun in the rain that I didn't think about Mr. Bachelor until he rode out from behind a little knoll half a mile to the north. I guess he'd taken a bath the same way I did. 
When we met, his face was shining, his hair was wet, and he was smiling. That done it, he sang out. Doubt me we'll lose another head. If Rush Creek ain't rose too fast and caught a few of them, about ready for some grub? When I unsaddled and hobbled the horses, Mr. Bassett laid out the grub he'd brought in his saddlebags. It looked as good to me as Thanksgiving dinner. There was hardtack crackers, two cans of sardines, a can of beans, and a can of tomatoes. For some reason, the tomatoes tasted better to me than anything I'd eaten in months. The horses hadn't had a bite to eat in two days, so we didn't hurry, but gave them a long, full hour to graze. While we were lying on the blanket, letting our clothes dry and soaking in the sunshine, asked Mr. Bachelet, With nothing to go by, how did you know the wind veered a point? I wouldn't know if it turned all the way around the compass. Never's a time when there's nothing to go by, he said, except it's plumb dark with no stars out. Always keep three points in your eye, same as if you was aiming a rifle. Back sight, front sight, and the spot you're shooting at. Don't need to see more than 20 feet so long as you pick a new front sight before you ride up on the back one. I can see how that would keep you going straight in a straight, going in a straight line, I said, but I still don't understand how you know when the wind changes, little as one point. Watch your horse's mane. That'll tell you. Mr. Batchelet's sorrel was just about worn out, and an hour's rest and grazing didn't help him much. He was sluggish on his feet, his wind was bad, <coughs> and he got spraddle-legged if Mr. Batchelet put him into a hard run. Blue Boy seemed as strong as if he'd been as strong as he had been before the dust storm. He didn't fight me much and answered the reins pretty well, but he was pretty much he wasn't much good with cattle. He acted as if he hated them. And when I'd try to cut an animal out of the bunch, he'd charge it like a wild stallion, raking in all directions with his bared teeth. It was nearly sundown before we had our cattle sorted out from the front range and driven back to Middle Rush Creek. But it didn't make any difference. The creek had turned from a dry ribbon of sand to a brown, raging river that frothed and boiled through the cottonwoods along its banks. The ten cattle we'd rounded up along the creek that morning were still bunched and, were gray and had grazed their way half a mile to the north. The creek was too high and fast to ford, so there was nothing to do but throw the ten in with the twenty-three we had found in the prairie and go into night camp. With the cattle half-starved and weary from the dust storm, there wasn't much work to hurting them. I kept watch while Mr. Bachelet slept three or four hours, then he took over for the rest of the night. <coughs> By morning, the middle rush was low enough to ford, and we had no trouble in finding the twelve cattle we'd left on the south branch. To drive from there to the big horse was slow because we had to range far out in both directions to be sure we didn't miss any of our stock. When we reached Big Horse Creek in the late afternoon, we were driving 57 cattle, all in pretty fair shape, and there were only one, there was only one unaccounted for. We might have missed a living out, living one somewhere, or one might have drifted far out and died in the storm. Mr. Bachelet's sorrel was hardly able to cover the last few miles to our old camp, but Blue Boy seemed none the worse for the storm and hard work. The full day and a half of rest and grazing had done wonders for the horse string. Even old Pinch was his ornery, crabby self again. There was no sense in trying to start out until the sorrel had a night's rest and grazing, so we spent the night so we spent the rest of the day loafing while Mr. Bachelet changed his plans for the trip. No use in us trying to make the purgatory after losing two days, he told me. <coughs> I said we'd be back to the home ranch by a week come Saturday, and I aimed to be there. Reckon we'll follow the big horse till we sight Nero Hill, then cut south to hit the valley east of Rocky Ford. Ought to be some good trading up along the valley. If we've made our trades by the time we hit the mouth of Black Squirrel Creek, and if there's water in it, we'll trail it up towards the home place. I'm sure sorry I fetched you along on so rough a trip. 
I'm not a bit sorry, I told him. I'm only sorry we lost 13 head of stock. Turn of the cards, Mr. Batchett said. No man can hope to draw aces every time, and if them range cattle we've seen are anything to go by, we might still hold a win in hand. That kind of herd needs improving, and young white-faced bulls ought to be pretty good trade stock. Did you take note that we didn't lose a single bull? Mr. Batchett was as right as about the demand for white-faced bulls as he had been about where to find them in the dust storm. Before we reached the Arkansas Valley, he traded 15 of them for 50 head of range steers, and he sold the steers for cash at Rocky Ford. Of course, I didn't have anything to do with the trading, but Mr. Batchett went to every ranch we passed in the valley. I'd hold the herd while he was gone, and when he came back, he'd usually have the rancher and a couple of milk cows with him. Sometimes they'd haggle and talk for an hour or two before the deal was made, and sometimes Mr. Batchett would give a few dollars to boot. But the rancher always left his cows and drove back one of our bulls or a couple of steers. I had to hold the herd for three or four hours <coughs> while Mr. Batchelet was selling the range steers in Rocky Ford. But after he came back, I told him I needed to ride into town for half an hour. I'd brought my 60 cents with me, and 55 of it was money that Hazel had won for me the first day we hunted cows and calves on the home ranch. Mr. Batchelet didn't ask me why I wanted to go into town, but told me to take my time. I didn't need very much time because I knew what I wanted. The first store I went into had some real nice <laughs> calfskin gloves with long gauntlets that had big red stars sewed in them. There was a pair that I thought would be just Hazel's size, but they were 65 cents. When I said I guessed I'd have to look some at something else because they cost too much for me, the man in the store asked, How much did you aim to spend, Sonny? 60 cents, I told him. That's all I've got. Want them for your best girl, he asked. Well, I said, I haven't got a best girl, but for a girl, she's my best friend. While he listened, the man began wrapping up the gloves, as if I'd said I'd take them. If she was your best girl, they'd be four bits, he told me. But being she's only your best girl friend, they'll cost you 60 cents. I didn't have any saddlebags, so I carried the gloves back inside my shirt. But that night, I stowed them in my war sack. Mr. Bachelet found the trading good all the way up the valley, and before we reached the mouth of the black squirrel, he traded what was left of our young stock for 47 milk cows. The creek had water in it until we were nearly to the place where we crossed our way east. And from there, we turned west toward the home ranch. After the dust storm, Blue Boy wasn't of any use for herding because he hated cattle too much. But Pinch and Lady held up in better shape than either Mr. Bachelet or I expected. By early twilight on Saturday, we came in sight of the home ranch and Mr. Bent and Hazel rode out to meet us. Hazel didn't say she was glad to see me back, and I didn't tell her I was glad to see her either. I didn't even give her the gloves until after Sunday school the next day. Well, that was a good story of finding everything. I love you.